In the, in the great books class that I took in high school, I didn't believe Mrs. Raymond when she tried to tell us about layers of meaning, of historical and biblical allusions in books like The Heart of Darkness, The Mayor of Casterbridge, and King Lear. I thought that the story at face value was all that was going on. As I got a little older, I began to realize that Mrs. Raymond was actually right. Great literature has all kinds of layers of meaning, references to history and scripture. As we look at Psalm 45 today, we might struggle to wrap our minds around some of the poetic and prophetic sections of scripture that, that teach about Jesus our Savior. The lines might get blurred at times. Are we talking about a king in David's line, an earthly king? Or are we talking about the king of kings? So, as we look to God's word this morning, I'd, I'd like to, to offer a verse from the story of Jesus when he's on the road to Emmaus with those uh, two disciples. I'd like to offer this verse as kind of an interpretive lens for us that will hopefully guide our thinking as we look at the great wedding of the great king. So, from Luke 24, 27, it says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I want to kind of take that as our interpretive framework or lens as we look at the 45th Psalm. But before we do that, let's, let's pray again, please. Lord God, we thank you for this day, for um, your goodness to us, for the opportunity to be here to freely worship. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work in each of our lives, especially that um, your word would be brought forth clearly, that we might see and make much of the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our only uh, Savior, your only begotten Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'd like to begin. I know we just sang through the first half, basically, of Psalm 45, but that was kind of a poetic paraphrase of sorts. Did any of you kind of feel like Yoda when you're did you notice there were a lot of verbs at the end of the, of the line? It seems a little, like I said, a little bit weird or clunky. But anyway, so here is Psalm 45 from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> to the choir master, according to lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. <clears throat> your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness, of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. 
forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise your name forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are somewhat enamored. We're intrigued by royal weddings, the grandeur, the display, the pomp, the circumstance. When I was a kid, it was Prince Charles and Lady Diana. Of course, in recent months, the attention has been on Prince Harry, his marriage to, uh, to Meghan Markle. In fact, royal weddings are a common theme in our movies, our fairy tales, our very best literature. I have a hunch that this could be due to some kind of, a, some kind of subconscious human longing that we have for things to be as they ought to be, for a return to the beauty and glory of King Adam and Queen Eve, if you will, and of the creation before our sin and fall. As we take a closer look at this 45th Psalm, I, I hope we will see the greatness of the king who is over all kings and the greatness of his great love for his bride, the church. The title, as I've already mentioned, that I've given for this message is The Great Wedding of the Great King. And we'll be looking at this psalm in five sections or scenes. There should be a, um, an outline in your bulletin somewhere, I, I believe, if you want to take any notes. These five scenes, scene one, the poet's great craft. Scene two, the bridegroom's great glory. Scene three, the bride's great beauty. Scene four, the marriage's great goal. And five, the poet's great ambition. So scene one, the poet's great craft, verse one. If you take a look at the inscription in verse one, you'll see that this psalm is a love song. It's a hymn celebrating a royal wedding. It's a wedding song, literally a song of loves, a song devoted to love or in celebration of love. Love is the main idea. We don't know which king in David's line that this song was composed for. Some people have suggested Solomon or some other son of David. This is kind of interesting. Uh, Spurgeon says that people who see only a son of David here are short-sighted. So if they only see a historical person, that's not enough. But Spurgeon continues, he says, people who see Solomon or some other son of David and Christ are cross-eyed. They're short-sighted, cross-eyed. And then he says, those with well-focused spiritual eyes see here, see here Jesus only. Okay? Well, with apologies to, Mr. to Pastor Spurgeon, I'm going to take the cross-eyed approach. I think this psalm was probably initially written for an actual son of David, David himself, maybe we don't know, for the actual occasion of a wedding of one of King David's descendants, but that it finds its perfect fulfillment in King Jesus. As we focus in this first section on the poet's great craft, 
Notice that this psalm is called a maskil. That's a, an instructive psalm for holy teaching. It's a psalm for instruction. We don't know who the author was, but many writers, including Augustine and Calvin, called him the prophet several times. This is a psalm for the sons of Korah. These were specially assigned and trained singers. Uh, the King, New King James says this is a contemplation of the sons of Korah. So this is not a sloppily crafted song. The author says, my heart is stirred, my heart overflows, it's boiling over or bubbling up like a fountain, like a geyser. He writes of a pleasing theme, a good theme, a beautiful thought. His subject is something interesting, pure, important, good, and worthy of attention. Calvin paraphrases it like this. My heart is ready to breathe forth something excellent and worthy of being remembered. This poet's composition is one of a, a ready scribe, he says. Probably one who wrote quickly and neatly with exactness, skillfulness of expression, and precision. He is a learned, competent, and trained writer. And he can't contain himself, so he composes a finely written an edited work. He is like Shakespeare or Dickens, not like Barry Manilow or Paul McCartney. This songwriter says, I write the songs, I write the songs, but he is not just filling the world with silly love songs. This Hebrew love song unites skill and feeling, and his excellent subject is the excellence of the king. So the heart stirred leads to worship. The heart stirred leads to worship. Good material demands good workmanship. Jesus our King has done all things well on our behalf. So do we strive to imitate his example? Do the glories of our God and King stir us up to overflowing worship? Now, not just emotion-filled singing, though that should be present, but do his glory stir us up to excellent and craft in our daily lives, in our daily grind, in our vocations, our relationships, and our service? Well, this psalm reminds us that we are not to offer to the Lord that which costs us nothing. Scene two, the bridegroom's great glory, verses two through nine. If you take a look at verse 2, we have here a description of the king. He is handsome. And that seems weird for a, in our culture for a man to describe another man as handsome um, because our minds have been jaded by, I think, our cultural setting. Um, but here, this king is called handsome because he reigns righteously and grace is poured upon his lips. He is beautiful. Beautiful. That word is actually repeated. He is beautiful. Beautiful above the children of men, above all men. This king is beautiful beyond any human standard or comparison. Well, this can't be true of any earthly king, can it? But let's consider King Jesus. He in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. He is all fair, all eloquent. In fact, he was so powerful an orator that the very winds obeyed his words. The crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, 
Even his enemies said, no one ever spoke like this man. Peter said, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. So truly, your beauty, King Messiah, is more excellent than the sons of men. Let's move on to verses 3 through 5. Here, the king going forth to battle is a picture of Messiah going forth to the great conquest of the world. The poet urges Christ to arm himself for battle by, by placing his sword where it is ready for use. Apparently, girding on the sword was also part of the royal inauguration ceremony in the Old Testament. So the writer is saying, Ascend the throne, be the king, long live the king. We can use words of the African uh, spiritual. Ride on, King Jesus. Ride on. No one can hinder thee. Ride on, King Jesus. Ride on. No one can hinder thee. This king is a champion of truth, humility, and justice. His is a dominion where humility, meekness, and gentleness are at the foundation. His kingdom has an infrastructure of righteousness, if you will. This king does awesome deeds, things that excite wonder and astonishment, dread deeds, awe-inspiring deeds, amazing deeds. Notice in verse 5, his arrows are sharp. They're not blunted or pointless. King Jesus does all things well, including judging the hearts and deeds of men. Back to Spurgeon, he writes, Whether for love or vengeance, Christ never misses aim. And when his arrows stick, they cause a smart not soon forgotten, a wound which only he can heal. So Jesus' truth penetrates the very hearts of men, and the heart so pierced falls beneath the king's feet, either defeated and destroyed, or defeated and redeemed. St. Augustine writes, Saul was a blasphemer of Christ. He was, lifted up, he was then lifted up. He prays to Christ. He is fallen. He is prostrate before him. The enemy of Christ is slain, that the disciple of Christ may live. By an arrow launched from heaven, Saul is wounded in the heart. He received the arrow. He fell in the heart. O arrow sharp and most mighty, by whose stroke Saul fell, so to become Paul. As it was with him, so it is also with us. We were enemies before. We have been stricken by your arrows. We have fallen before you. Out of enemies, we have been made friends. The enemies are dead. The friends survive. This Paul of whom Augustine speaks went on to write in Romans chapter 7, I was once alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Have you been defeated by King Jesus arrows yet. How are you responding? Are you trusting in his perfection 
in his sacrificial death, in his glorious resurrection, in his perfect intercession for the healing that only he can give. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7. Again, in my cross-eyed understanding of this psalm, one way to see this is that the your, at the beginning of verse 6, your throne, O God, refers to God, and the throne referred to here is the one that God established for his people. So not necessarily God's throne in heaven, but talking about the earthly throne that God established in David's line, the one that David's physical descendants occupied. In that sense, it is God's throne. It belongs to him. He set up the throne of David's line for the Jews. But, again, it's cross-eyed, so that could be wrong. At the same time, this is a promise of an eternal throne for the house of David. And the Bible itself clearly teaches us this. Teaches us that this promise is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in our unison scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 1. But of the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Jesus, as the greatest son of David and the true son of God, is the ultimate heir of David and his throne. And he shall reign forever and ever. Now if we return to to the historical context of Psalm 45, again in this cross-eyed view, one way to read the your um, in the second half of verse 6 and the following verses is that now it returns to the king, the earthly king. So verse 6a, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, addressing God. And now the scepter of your kingdom, returning to the Davidic king. If that is the case, then here we have some, some moral standards for the king, uprightness and righteousness. These are ideals for the king's reign and for his character. And as the king demonstrates these traits, he experiences God's blessing, and he is admired and respected in the world. And God anoints him with the oil of joy. The king is rewarded with superior joy. I'm reminded of Jesus' anointing from the Father. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This anointed and joyful king calls his people to follow him. We should imitate our king in his love and hate. They are both needed for our completion of our righteous character. So, so am I growing in my love for righteousness, for living by God's moral standards? At the same time, am I growing in my hatred of the wickedness I still see in my own life? Moving on to verses 8 and 9. Earlier the poet had written of seeing the king's glory, in verse 2, and hearing the king's gracious words, also in verse 2. And now, this is kind of a multi-sensory psalm. 
The rich and deep smells of the king's robes are described. An alternate translation reads, Thy garments are all myrrh, aloes, and cassia. This is a super-eminent fullness of anointing. This king of David is, this Davidic king is drenched in, he's permeated by the rich, grand, and beautiful aromas of myrrh, aloes, and cassia. Let's just consider the aroma of myrrh in King Jesus' life. Remember, it was a gift to him as an infant, Matthew 2. It was offered to him at his crucifixion. It was used to prepare his body for burial. So Jesus, in his redeeming work as our prophet, priest, and king, he knew this rich smell, this rich fragrance of myrrh. He knew the super-eminent fullness of anointing from his Father. The psalmist tells us that at this wedding, the music of the strings makes the king glad. Lovely music is being played for his enjoyment. And the queen, his royal bride, his favorite, is at his side. The Redeemer is made happy by the affection and the companionship of the redeemed, his people. So Christians, do we think of Jesus as full of joy? Do we realize that our kings, that we are our king's favorite? The church is his favorite and only bride. Christian, do we rest in the truth that we are God's children now? And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So, our precious Christ can never be made too much of. Jesus is the truest of heroes. Hero worship in his case alone is commendable. The bridegroom's glory is truly great. Moving on to scene three. Scene three, the bride's great beauty, verses 9 through 15. Verse 9b says, At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Once again, in my cross-eyed view of this text, David, or one of his descendants, got married, and this song was used to celebrate that marriage. But what unfolds here spiritually is a description of the bride of the Lamb, the church. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Notice here that, that the queen is at the king's right hand, the place of honor. The bride is exalted to the highest place of honor, the highest place of love and power. And so, the church shares her Lord's honor and happiness. He sets her in the first place of dignity. He clothes her with the best of the best. In our psalm, the queen is clothed in gold of Ophir, in a golden garment. Ophir was a prominent source for gold in Old Testament times, possibly in Arabia or Africa, no one knows for sure. It was known for providing the most excellent and precious gold. 
think this is kind of interesting. In 1 Kings 9, King Solomon sends out a group, says, They went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Okay, so this was the great place to go to get some gold. 1 Kings 22 says about another king, Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. The ships were wrecked, so they couldn't go get this precious gold. There are implications here that it was dangerous to acquire this gold from Ophir. This gold was fine and rare and difficult to find, difficult, dangerous even, to obtain. The queen's rich garments are obtained at a dangerous cost, at great expense, and the king is happy to provide them. This is true for every Christian. Knowing that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And our king is happy to provide this. The great bridegroom takes good care of his bride. In verses 10 to 13, the setting is perhaps in the court of the palace, before the princess is brought into the king's presence. The psalmist has some advice for her. He tells her to hear, consider, and incline her ear. He says, this is a matter of great importance. Pull up a chair, huddle close, listen carefully to my song about the king. She is told, forget your people and your father's house. Now, she may have been a foreign princess from a far-off land. We don't know. If so, she would have been trained under, under other customs and a different religion. But even if she was only from some local town, some town close by, she is still advised to forget her people, to repent of them even, because she has a new identity. Now she has to identify with the king and his interests. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, the, the change from the household of her childhood to that of her husband is sometimes an emotionally challenging time for earthly brides. Calvin says, the spiritual change by which the children of Adam begin to be the children of God and are transformed into new men is a thing so difficult. We deny ourselves and lay aside our former habits with intense and painful effort. And the ex our experience shows how dull and how slow we are to follow God. Spurgeon agrees, the house of our nativity is the house of sin. We must come forth of the house of fallen nature, for it is built in the city of destruction. We have much to forget as well as to learn, and the unlearning is so difficult that only diligent hearing, 
diligent considering and bending of the whole soul to it can accomplish the work. Even these would be too feeble did not divine grace assist. But think of the house and the father were leaving and what we're obtaining. We part with folly for wisdom. We part with bubbles for eternal joys. We part with deceit for truth, with misery for bliss, with idols for the living God. So Jesus tells us, if your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. The gain is so much greater than the cost, if we only realize. Jesus continues, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, that you give up the bubbles for the eternal joys. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So, are you dying? Am I dying? Am I dying to pride, self-interest, manipulation, greed? Am I dying to ego, an unforgiving spirit, self-will, jealousy, jealousy, micromanaging? Am I dying to selfishness, vanity, bitterness? Am I dying to anger? Forget your people and your father's house. It continues, for the king delights in your beauty. In fact, the king of this psalm is the one who makes his bride beautiful. Her clothing is stunning because his tastes are extravagant, but also because he wants his bride to reflect his attributes, righteousness and hatred of wickedness. Her countenance is full of joy because his shines with the oil of gladness. This is true spiritually for those of us who find ourselves naked and come to Christ to be clothed. Those of us who find ourselves helpless and look to Christ for grace. For he does not cease till he has got every spot and wrinkle out of his spouse's face. We are like the Canaanite woman who went from being a Gentile dog to being a woman commended for her faith. We are like Jerusalem who Ezekiel describes as being left for dead at her birth, but to whom God says, Live! Live! Not only that, but God makes a covenant to be her husband, and he takes her, washes her, dresses her extravagantly, and makes her his beautiful bride. If you have a chance to read Ezekiel 16, 1, 1 through 14, we won't do that this morning, um, at some point, you can see this beautiful picture of God making his people his bride. Luther says, Christ delights in the beauty of those he makes righteous. Now, this wonderful Savior is also our ruler. So like the bride in our psalm, we bow to him. We show him honor and respect. We worship, not just with outward ceremony, but with a holy desire to yield reverence and obedience. 
In verse 12, there's mention of Tyre. Tyre represents the riches of the commercial world. At this time, Tyre was probably the most wealthy and luxurious commercial town then existing. And we're told that the people of that land will seek the queen's favor. They will desire her smile. They will desire the light of her countenance, her friendship. In her new position, she will receive honor from the king's subjects. And so, the church will also joyfully participate in her king's glory on the last day. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, our king, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Looking now at verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15, we have the bridal procession. And it describes the princess. It says, She is all glorious, magnificent, gorgeous, rich, and splendid. She is wearing all that could give grace and beauty to her person. As her, uh, as her husband is described as all fragrant, in verse 8, so she is described here as all glorious. The bride is like the king. For the church, as her prince of life was crucified by the world for her redemption, so she begins to be crucified to the world in token of conformity to him. And at length she becomes all glorious within. She is his workmanship. In the psalm, verse 14, the bride's companions, her bridesmaids, are those who are admitted to this communion, they are pure in heart. And notice, they follow her. They are young ladies of rank in birth, and they will also be treated like queens. Likewise, the church and all her true members are beautiful and glorious and made worthy of the Savior's affections. They are brought into the fellowship of his family. Notice the queen is led. Her bridesmaids are following. So too, we are, we are made pure in heart by our good and all-powerful king. The church is brought. She does not come of herself. No, she must be convinced, converted, made willing. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Are we true companions of the bride, truly converted members of the church? Do we love Christ's church? In verse 15, we see that the bridal procession is accompanied by music and song, by, by laughter and joy. For the Jews, the marriage house was called the house of praise, and when we enter the eternal city, the palace of the great king, oh, what the husband and king of the church has in store for his bride. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout victory. There's a song, I don't know if you're familiar with Phil Kagey or not, but he has this great old song back from the what I call the Jesus People days, the early 70s. Um, he has a great song called What a Day That Will Be. And the chorus just says, What a day that will be, oh, what a day that will be. 
Moving on now to scene four. Scene four, the marriage's great goal, verse 16. The psalmist addresses the king now again, and he pronounces a blessing on his marriage. Verse 16. And what are the blessings to follow from this marriage? What will be the sign of the prosperity of this marriage? Will it be the companionship, pleasure, and relational fulfillment that he finds in his wife? Nope. Will it be having more money to buy better homes, nicer cars, more toys? Nope. Will this blessing be being able to have more luxurious vacations, having greater prestige and influence in his career? No. Will it be retiring early and having a half million in the bank? No. The sign of the prosperity of the great king's marriage to his beautiful bride is children. The king is told that his line will continue in his sons. The consistent testimony of scripture in the Christian church has always been that the work of raising children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord is important, significant, valuable, even epic work, even world-changing work. When a Christian man and woman marry and are blessed by God with children, they are participating with God in his work of creation. They are acting, in a sense, as co-creators with God. This is indeed a high and holy calling. And it's a high and holy calling even when you're tired and the diapers need to be changed. It's a high and holy calling even when the children need to be reminded for the thousandth time to turn off the basement lights when they come back up. Even when a kid is sick in the van and the mess needs to be cleaned up. It's a high and holy calling even when yet another load of laundry needs to be washed and the kitchen needs to be cleaned up. Even when you feel ill-prepared and ill-equipped to point them to your Savior. Having children is a high and holy calling even when it doesn't feel like it. Because having children is a high and holy calling because God says so. In fact, it was Solomon, one of David's sons, who wrote in another place, another psalm, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So I need to ask myself, in my marriage, am I open to life? Do I embrace children as the blessing God says they are? Moving from the earthly king to the heavenly king, this marriage will result in a line of succession culminating in an innumerable host from every nation gathered in heaven to praise him forever and ever. So here we have Jesus, the kingmaker. He raises up children to be members of his kingdom of priests. As this bride submits to her husband and king, so also any Christian who recognizes the true nature of Christ's sovereignty will desire to submit with humility, live in moral beauty, and pass on his or her faith with joy. In this way, the line of grace never becomes extinct. 
Well, regardless of our condition in life, married, single, child, adult, older, younger, how might God be calling each of us to value children, to glorify God with our bodies, to submit to our King's commands, and to pass on our faith? Scene 5, The Poet's Great Ambition, verse 17. The psalmist started this poem by talking about his great craft. He ends it by expressing his great ambition. I will cause your name to be remembered, to be celebrated forever. Well, this, this kind of language will certainly be, at the very least, an exaggeration if speaking of any earthly ruler. But it makes complete sense in speaking of the Lord of all creation. For though we are fascinated with royal weddings, with kings and queens, with the rich and famous and people in places of power, even with great Christian leaders and positions of influence, it is safe to say that they will always let us down in one way or another. Not one of them will, be, will so establish themselves in God's history that they will have a name worthy of being remembered forever and ever. No. To find the true accomplishment of what is said here, we must come to Christ. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is our great king. As the bride he has made beautiful, we look forward to his great wedding. Lord God, our great King, the psalm that we have considered this morning will never cease to be celebrated. The time will never come on earth when that praise will die away. And in all the eternity, beyond the termination of this world's history, there never will arrive a period when your name will not be honored, when your praise shall cease to be sung. For every song, every hymn, every psalm falls short that attempts to embrace the multitude of your mercies. If we should offer to you, O holy King, songs numberless as the sand, we should still have done nothing worthy of what you have given to us who shout to you, Alleluia. May you pour out your grace upon us that we might better reflect the light of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our great King on those we live with, work with, and worship with. In your holy name, amen.